David Devadas, noted author and columnist who has been writing extensively on politics of India as well as geopolitics of the world. He wrote a seminal book on Kashmir called In Search of Future several years ago. And since Kashmir is in news and a lot of people are talking about the genocide of Kashmiri Pandits, we will be talking about David's book In Search of Future today in this episode of Reason, the New Indians platform where we get to the reason of issues that concern you. Welcome to Reason, David. Thank you so much, Arthi. It's a pleasure to be on your program. Great. So, this book, In Search of Future, was written at a time when we hardly had anything concerning Kashmir in the detail that you have written. Nothing. Absolutely. So, why was there so much either silence or perhaps indifference or perhaps no interest whatsoever in documenting Kashmir's history, which we are nowadays talking about because of Vivek Agnihotri's movie, The Kashmir Files. Well, I came up with this idea. Actually, it was brought to me by a publisher. I was political editor of a major newspaper in the late, through most of the 1990s. And one day I was having lunch with the publisher and she said, why don't you write a book? We'd love to publish it. And I said, as you pointed out, I had covered uh, politics. So I said, let me write about the Narasimha Rao years. And she said, you know, you should write a book on Kashmir. That will be a much better and more interesting book. So I said, okay. And I had covered Kashmir in great detail through the 90s. I, in fact, I was the first in 1990 to bring out the situation in Kashmir I wrote a series of articles on the macro situation and how bad it was, along with an article separately on what was happening to the pundits. This was in February 1990. And George Fernandez told me when he was Raksha Mantri more than a decade later, he said, you know, David, it was your articles, that series of articles that you wrote in anchor pieces that told us in government how bad the situation was. So I had got involved from So let me interrupt you here. So are you saying that the government actually did not have, have any idea, any intelligence about what had happened in the late 80s in Kashmir, uh, which eventually evolved into eruption of insurgency in Kashmir? Did they have no clue whatsoever? Aarti, the less said about uh, the intelligence, I, I really um, marvel sometimes. Uh, I wrote an, uh, the day Burhan Mani was killed. I wrote an article that night, this news spread at 7 p.m. The article was published the next morning in uh, First Post. During the night, I did that everyone involved with intelligence and all of these things should either be, be sacked for incompetence or investigated for treason. Because that was my sense of how bad this was going to get. And I had been saying this from the previous year. I remember I met someone very high up in the power structure in about September 2015. He was killed on July the 8th, 2016, 10 months later. And I said, you know, whatever you do, keep this boy alive. You should catch him alive because 
this is because I could see that between June and September 2015, he was built up yes. as an yeah. icon. Yeah. He, he was given a free hand. In fact, on Facebook, he was all over the place. And this was a boy who actually hadn't killed anyone. But he was a fresh-faced sort of, you know, the kind of character that was romanticized on both sides. And therefore, I realized that this was... That he was being built. So and coming back one to... One doesn't want to go into more about, you know, one's suspicions about what was going on. So coming back to In Search of Future, why I'm discussing this book today is because it seems entire India has suddenly woken up because of the Kashmir files. As if nobody ever wrote anything about the situation that led to the genocide of Kashmiri Pandits. But in your book, you've been, uh, you know, you've written extensively about Kashmiri Pandits historically, as well as their relationship with Kashmiri Muslims. And you also talked about the year 8990 in, in which, yeah, in which, uh, you know, ethnic cleansing happened. So tell us that why is it that there was hardly anyone who called it ethnic cleansing among media? I did. Yes. This book did. But rather than talk about that book, and we should come to why that book, it was in heavy demand. You wrote about ethnic cleansing of Kashmiri Hindus, Kashmiri Pandits. Nobody else called it ethnic cleansing. Well, I went through a lot of thinking about it, Aarti, and I went through a lot of cogitation while writing. And formulating because there was no other work on this period this entire period in fact someone else who's written a book on Kashmir said this is the first one said this in print while reviewing it this is the first book that has brought out the facts of the situation between 1953 and 1987 can you explain for our audience what exactly happened how did the genocide of Kashmiri Hindus unfold in 1890? Who were the main players of the genocide? See, there were many factors that went into it that had been building for some time. And I have gone into it analytically elsewhere that many of the patterns of the 1920s were repeated in the 1980s. That there was a wave of Islamism and in the 1980s it was brought in because of what had happened, the, the Islamic revolution in Iran, and that slogan, La Sharkiya, La Gharbiya, Islamia, Islamia, that, you know, not East, not West, only Islam. And uh, in uh, Afghanistan, the whole jih jihad, everything was all about, everyone was talking about jihad, including Hollywood, mm -hmm. Rambo, and all of that. Yes. And, of course, uh, Ziaul Haq, who, as soon as he had helped the West, deal with the Soviet Union and bring down virtually the Soviet Union through the action in Afghanistan. And that is why I keep saying what is happening in Afghanistan is extremely relevant to what is happening, what will happen in Kashmir. But you because, said 1920s. Yes. So can that you was one of the factors. Can you there were economic what ha factors. What happened were, in 19- You see, there was a huge uprising of Kashmiri Muslims in 1931. So I'm talking about the various factors, economic as well as uh, geopolitical, foreign influences. There were, believe it or not, there was infiltration from West Punjab even in 1931 into the territory of the Maharaja. West Punjab meaning Lahore and that area hmm. around there. And the Maharaja finally had to go to the British and say, please help stop this. And you know what happened then? The British troops marched into Jammu. And the agitations had been in Kashmir, the troubles had been in Kashmir. Martial law had been declared in Srinagar and Shupian. Again, a lot of repetitions. And 
the troops marched into Jammu and then a lot of things happened in terms of giving certain rights etc but also the British then started negotiating for the Gilgit lease. So who was controlling when you say uh, infiltration happened even in 1930s who was controlling and mobilizing? Well as I said in 1931 when the Maharaja appealed to the British governor in Lahore the Viceroy issued a proclamation banning uh, infiltration banning all of those um, groups and it stopped and the press stopped writing about uh, whatever had been so what was the flavor of the day so are we saying that it was there was an agenda of muslim uh, uprising or i don't know islamic radicalism what was it what was the agenda there have been agendas and not just one various agendas political as well as geopolitical that have been operating in kashmir it goes back to the 1870s you know when the british uh, went into afghanistan and came back uh, with the humiliating series of reverses in the early 1870s, they turned to Gilgit. And it is in 1876-77 that a lot of pressure was brought on the Maharaja. Again, there was talk of genocide of Kashmiri Muslims, that the Maharaja had drowned Muslims by the boatload in the Wooler Lake, for which the Maharaja then instituted an inquiry with members from outside the state, and they said, this is rubbish. But then the British had put so much pressure on him that he was forced to agree to the first Gilgit agent. See, Gilgit, and I keep coming back to the geopolitical uh, patterns around Kashmir, Gilgit, which is now in the Pakistan controlled by Kashmir. Pakistan, but also by China. There are Chinese troops mm. there now. And Afghanistan. Gilgit and Afghanistan have had a direct and the geopolitics of those. And for that, people have manipulated the situation in Kashmir time and time again for foreign powers to then gain advantage in those strategic areas. Was there any role of the Muslim League in what happened eventually in Kashmir? I mean to say, was Islamism a project of Muslim League in no, Kashmir? No, no, not in Kashmir. In fact, it was uh, Sheikh Abdullah who went to meet, meet uh, Mr. Jinnah in Mumbai, and then again in Delhi and persuaded him to come to Kashmir. But that was in 44-45, much, much later. And Jinnah came, you know, this again surprises a lot of people that, but Sheikh Abdullah was a friend of Nehru's, they say, uh, which is true. But he was also trying to keep a good he relationship or build a good relationship with Mr. Jinnah as... He was keeping all his options open. Well, yes, you could say that. And it didn't work out in terms of that visit because Jinnah kept insisting that you must adopt the Muslim conference or, or merge with the Muslim conference. You see, what the agitation of 1931 led to uh, the formation of a political party, which was called the Muslim Conference in 1932. In 38-39, under the influence of communists and Nehru and others, a large number of the people who were in the Muslim conference, largely in the valley, converted it into the national conference. In fact, the whole Muslim conference was converted into the National Conference. In 1940, the Muslim conference was revived, mainly in the Jammu area, led by Chaudhary Abbas, who was a great leader at that time. The sad thing is that there's so much of a divide even on the knowledge base about Kashmir. You know, Indians are told there was one great leader of Kashmir who was called Sheikh Abdullah. Pakistanis are told there was one great leader of In fact, in the Jammu movie, the Kashmir, Kashmir files, there is this dialogue about who's the greatest leader of Kashmir. That is, that is going way back in history. I'm talking about the same coterminous. Yeah. Between 1930 and 1947 and beyond, hmm. 
Chaudhary Abbas, as far as Pakistanis are concerned, he was the great leader of uh, Jammu and Kashmir. But let me bring you back to the issue of Kashmiri Pandit ethnic cleansing. Who were the players at the time? We are now uh, talking about Farooq Abdullah, we are talking about intelligence agencies, we are talking about VP Singh, we are talking about Mufti Saeed. Who played what role? And then this uh, conspiracy theory of Jagmohan Governor Jagmohan driving out Kashmiri Pandits. What is the truth? Well, Jagmohan was the governor. He was brought in at a time when a lot of things were going completely out of hand. The real turning point is the release of prisoners in exchange for Rubaiya Singh on the 13th of December 1989. And that's when this explosive sort of sentiment gathered. People became so enthusiastic about a movement that had been sort of, people weren't sure at large, you know, people in general. They were suspicious. You know, Kashmir is full of suspicions. Everybody is. agent So even those JKLF boys who had come with training and arms from Pakistan, there was a conspiracy theory that all kinds of that moment when those people were released. And that was under pressure from the central government. This book has every detail in great, you know point by point timings and what happened at whatever moment in that. Not only that, but from 1920 on, or 1930 on. Mm. But at that time, it was the central government. You see, the chief secretary of the state, Mr. Musa Raza, had negotiated very ably with the representatives of those boys for the release of only one prisoner, Hamid Sheikh, mm. who was the one that they wanted. Ishfaq and Yasin, the etc. They were very close friends. They were thick. So they wanted him released. And he had negotiated this. There would be a simultaneous exchange of Rubaiya Sayyid for Hamichi. But the center insisted. And this is also in that film that Justice Motilal Bhatt was sent. No, that's in some other uh, video that I recently saw. That uh, was sent by the Home Minister to go and negotiate. And he reopened the negotiation and then everybody was, uh, five people were released. Uh, and that Rubaiya herself, I've recorded in this book, was totally amazed and her, her heart shrank. She was like, because she was coming back and she had stood up to these people. She was a very brave woman. You know, during those five or six days that she was under, from the 8th to the 13th, yeah, five days that she was uh, in their custody, she had stood up to them and she was brave. She was, she didn't give in, but on her way back, and she was, remember, driven back five hours after those others had been released. So are the you saying, had are been you saying Rubaiya Saeed's kidnapping and the exchange that happened led to the genocide of Kashmiri Pandits? No, the genocide was different. I, 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 I have I'm, 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 I'm focusing on this term. issue because, because yeah. there is a debate going on in the country about the ethnic cleansing. No, I'm talking about so the other I want to know what happened. Because as far as my, my research is concerned and my own experience in Kashmir, by the time Governor Jagmohan came, 20 Kashmiri Pandit, prominent Kashmiri Pandit leaders had been killed. Now, 20 prominent Pandit uh, faces of a community which is already a minuscule community, if uh, they have been targeted and killed, it will obviously create a fear yes. psychosis. Yes. So I want to understand that what happened during Farooq's tenure and then what happened during VP Singh's direct, you know, control in jail? See, most pundits on the ground, and I went several times to Habba Kadal in February 19, when I went as a journalist 
to report on the situation. Uh, my taxi driver would refuse to take me because nobody wanted to go into the inner city of Srinagar. But I would take an auto and walk some distance and go and talk to these people. Mr. Jattu and other leaders of the community who were there in Habba Kadaldi were all very confused, very upset, very panicky, terrorized. What do we do next? Now those 20 that you're talking about, the, whatever number was killed in 1989, Tiflu mm -hmm. and uh, uh, Justice Ganju and others, people at large, the pundits at large, had the idea that they've been killed for a particular reason. So-and-so was a judge, so-and-so was, was with the RSS, somebody was with IB or somebody else was a lawyer and who had uh, argued certain cases. So there was always a particular reason for specific, that specific person. Lassa calls Kiri changed that. He was a very prominent and popular figure in Srinagar, mm -hmm. in Srinagar society. He was not just the director of Doodarshan, he was a very popular and outgoing person. Who a lot of people knew and liked and had great regard for. That set off a new set of, now everybody is, you know, it's like open season. Many of those other things happened a little later. You know, the woman who was sawn yeah, alive at a saw mill or the man who was killed in a rice uh, drum, those things happened. Now, of course, all those separate incidents have been conflated in the film, collapsed into mm. one story. Mm. But those things happened separately mm. in different places. The headmaster who was killed very, very gruesomely, tortured before, Sir, yeah. no, we've, they've only shown the hanging. There were many incidents hmm. uh, that I've recorded in this book, hmm. that I've talked about. So what happened? But like, I want to understand what was Farooq Abdullah doing uh, before these killings started? See, that's what I'm saying. Farooq Abdullah had gone, had I, resigned. I, no, I want to understand what was happening in 1989, before Farooq Abdullah resigned. I have also described that in the book. There was actually, I think there is a certain amount of reconstruction of what happened hmm. because uh, I was surprised to find I interviewed General Krishna Rao in great detail. He was sent in perhaps May 89 by Rajiv Gandhi. And he told me, Rajiv Gandhi has, had sent me with the instruction that you go and see, this, there's chaos, there's something really going wrong there. Uh, if you think fit, you take over the government. Meaning that the chief minister can be dismissed. He, Krishna Rao told me, General Krishna Rao told me that he took the decision that no, we should work through the civilian government. And so uh, he worked closely with Farooq Abdullah, and uh, but it, things were going out of hand. It is true. Why did Governor Jagmohan write uh, in his book that he sent several warnings, several alerts to New Delhi uh, during Rajiv Gandhi's government? Uh, this is before. But that is '86. See, he uh, no, no, became no, no. governor the first time. Yeah, no, no. We're talking about uh, from '84 to '86. Six, and so he already had sent information already but sent warnings yeah. yeah because the build up that we saw the eruption that we saw in 1890 was there was a lot of homework that had been done that was what years. i began by saying that islamism hmm. had come from uh, iran from afghanistan from wherever hmm. these movements hmm. were you know very distinctly islamic yeah. movement. movements so this had an impact in the 20s and again the Anjumane uh, Ehliyadis um, could not get itself registered in Bhopal and other parts of the British Empire. It was registered finally in Srinagar in 1925. And this is despite the fact that about maybe around 50 years before that, 
Maharaja Ranveer Singh had been had externed the preachers of the Ayurvedis who had come to Kashmir under pressure from the various clerics and you know the traditional uh, ziyarati Islam that had been common in Kashmir and the ziyarati Islam remained popular even until the 90s. It's in the latter, it's in the new century where actually the more fundamentalist Islam has spread among the Kashmiris and become quite strong now. Uh, but th that's another story you want to focus yes. on. So I want to focus on what preceded the eruption and what led to the killings. Uh, we, we know that JKLF was in fact uh, involved in the killings of Kashmiri Pandits. Yes. Even as they called themselves a very secular no, organization. No, they didn't call themselves secular then. Okay. Right? Yeah, because they, this is the perception. No. Lot of Delhi colonists, lot of Delhi experts called Jammu and Kashmir Liberation Front, including Praveen Swami uh, in his book said Jammu and Kashmir Liberation Front was supposedly secular. No. Of well, course let me complete he, my sentence. Yeah. I was about to say they meaning the boys on the ground in Kashmir. The JKLF that was established in Muzaffarabad in 1966, if I'm not, I think it was 65 or 66. And it was at that time called the Jammu and Kashmir National Liberation Front. It was a, it, it had the term national. So Pakistanis also didn't like that. That was a group of leftists basically, including Makbul Bhatt. Who also had some association with national conference. I don't think so. I checked this out and I didn't find any evidence of that. But there's but a, Farooq Abdullah was. Uh, Farooq Abdullah, when he went in 1964 with his father, uh, had uh, attended some. They were, of course, in Muzaffarabad, all these people were active. Hmm. So when they were there and they've been taken under, you know, they, they've gone as a delegation to try and sort out the problem overall. So he had attended some meetings and been with. The JKLF people too, and it was still called the JKNLF. Hmm. It was in the 1980s that Pakistan forced them to change or got them to change to drop the national party, and then started funding them and helping them from 87 on. And I've given details of who went in which group in this book. There's a detailed account of which fellows went in which group from January 1987 onwards. Who was hurting them? Who was taking them? How they were going? And actually, there were. That's one thing that I found in this film. They showed a whole lot of weapons in 1990. My impression is that there was not that much weaponry by 1990. It's soon after that that weapons started coming in in vast um, numbers. But of course, there are different views on how many may have been lurking in the shadows, may have been brought in uh, quietly. But that was the, that's what my research indicated. Mm. But. You're talking about specifically 1989 90. Hmm. And the period of until January 1990, Zia Haq's program of backing the JKLF, which was a cover, really. Hmm. Yeah. You know, when he started backing them, and he sent messages to uh, Makbul Bhatt's relatives, because that, that was the sort of contact point, as it were. In 87, um, and then they started, sorry, they went across in 88 for the first time for actual training. But 87, these contacts were made. And the rigging of those elections was one of the, the factors that gave an impetus, even on the other side, across that the time seems to be right. Now, these people had gone and Zia's plan was very simple. And I've, again, I'm, I think this is the only book that records that these people went and met Zia Haq personally 
the people who started it, not Ishfaq and Yasin, etc., but the people who were Baza and others who had, they had gone to actually meet uh, Ziaullah personally. And he had said the world should only hear the word Azadi, the word freedom, because that is how he would, he had hoped, is from what I can make out, that he would get the West, which was grateful to him for having helped them bring down the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, get them down to back this freedom movement, and then he would take it over, right? as far as I can make yeah. out. Now, of course, he was killed in that uh, air crash on uh, the 17th of August, uh, 1888. After that, the ISI was blindly going forward with the plan that they thought he had, but they really were not quite sure. And by the end of 89, there was a lot of pressure from a lot of other groups to give arms and training to those groups, apart from JKLF. Because a lot of those people were not, because the JKLF based in Muzaffarabad, as I said, were leftists. And they used to make them sign a document saying, you will give your blood only for the freedom of Kashmir. This is not about any of those other factors that but, were animating But JKLF uh, members on, on Kashmir side, on our side? Who See, the Kashmiri boys who went had no idea. Hmm. And I've again talked about the uh, ISL the, and those other groups that were formed within Srinagar in the mid-1980s. I have talked about uh, Malvi Mudhairuddin who was uh, giving sermons at Ikra Masjid, a stone's throw from the police headquarters of that time and uh, the, at least the police, police control room of that time. And he personally influenced both Ishfaq Majid and uh, Gugasad, as he was called, the man who formed fundamentalist and pan-Islamist organization, Hezbollah, in Kashmir. Hezbollah is very different from the Hezbollah of and what I was amazed at at a seminar or a conference at one of these think tanks, a former DGP said Hezbollah was a Shia outfit. He was talking about Hezbollah of, uh, of Lebanon, yeah, yeah. which is completely different from this pan-Islamist outfit that had been there. What I'm just what I'm saying is the forces and the, those who should have understood and known what was going on had no idea. People were only bothered about their own promotions. As SP, they were looking after their little district, and then they were moving on to. A larger area. Nobody had studied this. And when, I re when I started researching the 1990s, who was uh, giving orders to Bitta Karate, Yasin Malik? Who, who was their handler in Kashmir or across the border? Bitta Karate was getting instructions from Ishfaq. Ishfaq was the commander in chief. Yasin was his lieutenant, was his close friend. He carried Yasin on his shoulders on the journey back because Yasin was too weak. So Yasin was his sort of thinker, he was his sort of uh, the more educated one. But Ishfaq, Ishfaq was educated, he was a, a product of a very good school, but he had not been studious, he had not been, was, you know, he'd been a bit of a you know, strong man even as a teenager. And, uh, but he was appointed commander-in-chief of JKLF by the people across. And a lot of the younger, the other militants who had thought they were senior, they were older, whatever, were very disappointed. That's why I'm saying by 1989, pressure built up on the ISI. So finally, in November 1989... But this, this entire group, Haji group, who was handling them? They were, to a large extent, autonomous within the valley. So what was the motivation to kill Kashmiri? I don't think that was an overall order. There was a certain amount of, and that is why you have to study sociology and the socio-economic dynamics of uh, Kashmir through history. There's a lot of pent up. I have described it, in fact, uh, my editor when he was seeing this book, what about Kashmiriyat? 
So actually, then I pointed out a few paragraphs that I've written about Kashmiriyat. That this Kashmiriyat is a concept that was invented in the early 20th century. And it was prop propagated and promoted by those in power. But it didn't exist really. It existed, but there's, see, a lot of, the, one of the main themes in this book when I tried to analyze Kashmir and the Kashmiris has been ambivalence. There is this as well as that. You say this in Jammu, you say that in uh, Srinagar, you say some journalists. In Delhi. It was famously said in, uh, among uh, Kashmiri journalists that outside, uh, foreign journalist comes to it, they tell Yeah, in fact, my, own, ex my own experience uh, in Kashmir was that foreign journalists would come and then there would be a Kashmir conflict tour. There were select people in media industry in Kashmir whom they would meet and then that person would go you know with along with them and there would be escorts and they would go to martyrs graveyard and there would be human rights violation documents and so there was that it's always seemed to me and only human rights violations yes, on one side yes human this rights violations book, committed this is the by the only Indian, book that Indian talks Indian about human human Indian rights Army. violations on every side in a war situation or in a conflict situation you will have human rights violations but in the international press uh, all we read was uh, India was an oppressor, an occupier, India was committing, Indian army was committing. It depends on what perspective you want to take. In a conflict situation, there are various, you know, what they call warlords in Afghanistan. And you were talking about the journalists in, in Afghanistan, a similar um, situation or pattern exists. And they very rudely call them fixers, the foreign journalists. My fixer did this. Or my fixer to, took me here. It was similar in Kashmir as well because it always seemed to me uh, because I am a Kashmiri and I follow the language and I know the psychology of the place as well. It always seemed that there was an orchestrated setup and that foreign journalists would be carefully taken to certain places and they he would come out with a scripted story of Kashmir. Well, one of the reasons why maybe I was able to go deeper was that I met several journalists, in Kashmiri journalists, got their views and their um, advice on what needs to be seen, etc. But then went about it on my own. I went to villages in 1994, when the Kashmiri journalists were aghast, because I suppose their reasoning must have been that if he will go and write stories, then our editors will ask, why don't you go? But nobody dared to go. And I can understand. I'm not saying that they were doing anything wrong. It was very dangerous. Sometimes I look back on those experiences and think I must have been, well, I was young and a little sort of foolish, yeah, if you like. I've actually faced a gun way. No, I didn't realize that day what it means to be speechless. I couldn't utter a sound because after I'd seen, been staring down the wrong end of the barrel of a gun. But tell me, whole section of Indian media tried to whitewash the ethnic cleansing of Kashmiri Hindus in the last 32 years. In fact, uh, some even went to the extent uh, saying that Kashmiri Pandits were killed because they were elites and they were they controlled power. And I have been to archives, digital archives of major national newspapers in this country. I have uh, tried to look for documentation of ethnic cleansing of Kashmiri Pandits. I hardly found anything except your book and perhaps maybe a few uh, stories in India Today or some other magazine and news track of course. Uh, there were very few journalists who were writing truth as it is. What happened to let media me, of India? Let me make two or three points here. One, 
I chose the, to use the term ethnic cleansing after a lot of thinking and cogitation. I did not use the word genocide because genocide suggests a large number of deaths. What happened was a few very terrifying and horrific deaths that terrorized a community and caused them to flee. And that amounts to ethnic cleansing, that you remove a certain community from a territory. Now, situation has never been generated for them to return. Whether they want to return is or not is a different matter. Whole new generations have grown up who've never seen Kashmir. And many of them don't want to go. In fact, when a, a Kashmiri publisher had asked me some years ago to write a book, I suggested a book on what has happened to the pundits. There's a lot of sociological change and cultural change in Jammu. And that elsewhere. is why it's genocide, because it's systematic, happened over years. But, but that's a different but, debate altogether. But let me get back to the other two points that I wanted to yeah. make. That for whatever reason, journalists tend to go to Kashmir, to Srinagar, and to roam around from there. Nobody goes to Jammu to research. I, or largely, some do, but, uh, but largely. I went to Jammu. I went to Muthi camp. I discovered what was happening there. I saw those tents. The film actually shows a much cleaner camp than Thank there was. And those snake bites was, so many people died of snake bites. Yes. But I went and saw all this. So I was able to relate to what has happened. And I had, as it happened by chance, my editor sent me in February 90. I had no intention on my own. But I was sent in uh, February 90 to go and cover Kashmir. And when I brought back that series of reports, as well as a separate report on the pundits, there was consternation in the office. My editor-in-chief looked through my series of reports and said, it was sent to him, he looked at it, called me, said, is it really that bad? You know, and that's what I'm saying. It's not the fault of the journalists. A lot of the, the journalists who were based in Srinagar had been pundits. And quite often they've been moving to Jammu during the, the bar move. Now the situation was getting worse, but they were not able to come back. They were also terrorized. Their families were, there was pressure. Now. Many of those who had been whatever teleprinter operators or whatever in their offices in Srinagar were now sending reports. There were some journalists who were there, but most of the reports that were being published in the national press were single column uh, daily reports five dead, three injured, bomb blast. That was the pattern on a daily basis. So nobody got that larger picture of what was going on behind that. And this became the dominant thing because you know what news is that when you have three deaths five deaths in a particular incident that dominates that day's news whereas these pandit killings that you were talking about the specific people justice nirkant uh, ganju etc we never read anything about but in 1990 we didn't read about the woman who was uh, was cut into pieces Absolutely. we didn't read these stories about rape and murder we didn't none of these reports came to the national press. I thought about this later when I was writing the book and researching all this and discovering so many things. You know that woman being sawn at a sawmill when I was told first, I thought somebody's exaggerating, somebody's making up or whatever they're trying to. I was just, it was just unbelievable that this act actually happened. So I went to a very high level of uh, officer to check and I was told in a very sort of, you know, standoffish way, ah, something like that happened. And then I went further to research more. Okay, then that um, the old, old principal, the retired school principal who was horribly 
tortured before being um, killed. That story also. Now these happened in small places. Now you know what in a in any state, but particularly in a state like that, and particularly during terrible violence in a state like that, even reporters don't go out. But then, uh, if you really uh, look at uh, the documentation that happened. There are stories about torture committed by Indian security forces. You, we have those reports. Mm -hmm. So wasn't there a brazen bias, prejudice against Kashmiri Pandits? When back to research what had happened, I realized that I personally, I felt bad. How did we miss all this? But I had not gone back after March uh, 1990 for a long time because so many things happened in Delhi. The Mandal report was implemented. I was sent to UP and Bihar to cover the situation on the ground there in relation to the Mandal agitations. Then the Ramjan Bhumi uh, agitation picked up uh, uh, speed. Rath Yatra and interviewing uh, Atalji and uh, Lalji and politics of the, at the national level. That's what I was involved in. Rajiv Gandhi was assassinated midway. So some elections got slightly postponed. Then the formation of the new government, who is going to be, Narasimha Rao comes in, then the reforms, all of that, and then it carried on to 91, 92, 92 was the um, Babri Masjid was uh, brought down. So all of that occupied the attention of many of us who were national level journalists. And the people on the ground in Kashmir, as I said, many of those who had been established journalists in Srinagar had moved away because they were many of them were pundits. Some of the others had newly become journalists at that time and was just getting used to what needed to be done. There was also a lot of pressure. You know how much the uh, militant uh, organizations were able to dominate what goes into the news. Mm -hmm. And some of us who came from outside for just a few days visit had it easier because we could go back and write whatever. So you are essentially saying that if you need to know the truth, you have to do the footwork. And that's what yes. David Devdas did in Kashmir. And on that note, we end this beautiful, fascinating, enlightening conversation. Thank you for being with us today at the New Indian. Welcome and thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.